And then the third component of this is we get more involved with uh, producers on pig marketing. Obviously, we got to understand the variation in the barn and how to uh, make marketing strategies to help minimize variation at packing plants. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Roundtable. This is a new series of episodes created by the Swinet Podcast and Provimi, where we'll have roundtables with experts of the global swine industry tackling subjects that can influence the producer's bottom line. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. ProVME supports the podcast's goal of helping pork producers improve their systems and businesses. Let's get back to the podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's Swine It podcast. And today with me, I have Drs. Joel DeRushi, Dr. Matt Ritter, and Andres Toloso. How is everyone today? We're doing well. Thanks for having us on, Laura. Good. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Glad to have you all on. This is my first time having multiple guests uh, on a podcast, so we'll see how this goes today. Um, so before we really get started, I'd like for each of you just to give our audience a, a really brief background as to who you are and, and who you work for, and um, and then we'll lead into the topic for today. So uh, Dr. Jerushi is first on my screen, so I'll let you go ahead and start, Joel. Sure. Well, and welcome everybody to uh, listening to this topic today. And yeah, my name is Joel Derushi. Work here at Kansas State University in the Department of Animal Sciences as a swine nutritionist. My appointment is a research and extension. So the way I explain that is I work a lot with graduate students and swine producers. I also do some limited teaching as well with our undergrads and graduate students and really work here on a team of swine nutritionists and Really, our goal is to generate um, applied information for our swine producers, not only in Kansas, but throughout the U.S. and the world that have questions and interests in, in swine nutrition. A pleasure to have you on today, Joel. Um, Matt, you're next on my screen. Yeah, thanks, Laura. So my name is Matt Ritter. I lead the North American Swine Technical Team for Cargill Provimi. Uh, so I lead the team of swine nutritionists that work directly with pork producers on diet strategy and nutrition consulting. I've been with the Cargill Provimi group for about two and a half years. And prior to that was with the Co Animal Health for 12 years and tech services and R&D roles. Great. Glad to have you on today, Matt. Andres. All right. Thank you for having us here. Uh, I'm originally from Colombia. I'm a PhD student in the Kansas State University Swine Nutrition Team, been in the group for about a year and a half now. Uh, did my master's in the EOFI with my Kelly's and then been learning a lot during this time with the with the swine nutrition team in Kansas. Glad to have you as well, Andres. So for our audience today, the reason why we're creating this podcast is there's been some very interesting work being conducted between Kansas State and Cargill Provini, focusing on creating prediction equations and, and really looking at uh, the data that we have to better understand how we can market hogs, as well as understanding the coefficient of variation and standard deviation around um, not only the market animals, but how it changes from the time the pigs are born up through market. And of course, all the factors in between that can alter 
that that precious number for coefficient variation and standard deviation. So I think I'll let Matt kind of leave this discussion for a moment and talk a little bit more about how this this came into fruition with the team. Yeah, so about a year and a half ago, the, the Cargill Pravimi team was starting to plan our 2020 research priorities, which are now a little bit laughable given the, the curveball that COVID-19 threw at us. But uh, one of the big questions the team had was really around managing variation. And that came up for three reasons. One, with, with the export opportunities in front of U.S. pork producers, we, we felt like the acceptance of ractopamine was going to de decrease. And that's been a tool that we've used for years to bring the bottom end pig, the weight up on the bottom end pigs uh, and help with pig marketing. Another thing is around nutrition modeling. A lot of the models that we use today for nutrition decisions are based around one pig versus feeding a population of pigs or the variation around a given weight. And then the third component of this is we get more involved with uh, producers on pig marketing. Obviously, we got to understand the variation in the barn and how to uh, make marketing strategies to help minimize variation at the packing plant. So those are really the three driving forces and as we looked at groups out there that have done a lot of work in this area, Kansas State came to the top of mind and reached out to, to Dr. Derushi to see if there was mutual interest to, to start a collaborative project here. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, it's really is a great thing to start thinking about and really working on. Could you maybe, Matt, help us understand why weight variation is even a concern? We've, we talk about it all the time, particularly Every time I would load out a group of hogs, we'd look at the standard deviation on the loadout. But obviously, we talk about it as a barn as well. But why is it really a concern? Well, obviously, there's huge economic implications when we would just start on the pig marketing side. And, you know, Andres will get into to what are the norms, but it, it was a little bit eye opening for me to think about when you start taking Andres information and applying it to a barn of pigs and thinking about we could have 150 pound range in body weights within a given barn of pigs. And when we focus so much in swine production on the averages, that, that's a little bit eye opening to think about nutritional requirements, marketing strategies, health protocols. Uh, there's there's a lot to understand there and think about, you know, how can we minimize this going forward? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very good point because nine times out of 10, when we talk about variation, most of us are focused on just the marketing aspect. Yeah. What does that mean in terms of the number of loads I have to have? When do I schedule them? You know, how many pigs are going to be outside the box? Those types of conversations. So the idea that we were going to talk about potential nutritional implications or other management strategies, I think, will be a really interesting point in our discussion today. Um, do you have any ideas of what type of money gets left on the table every year because we don't manage variation? Yeah, so this morning I went through some scenarios with the, the Cargill producer profitability suite of tools looking at some what-if scenarios. So let's say we've got a 10% coefficient of variation in carcass weight, and we want to reduce it to 9%. I looked at that across four different packer grids with current market conditions and what it looked like is the, the value opportunity was 75 cents a pig 
to $1.75 per pig just by being able to reduce CV by 1%. Now, obviously, that's going to take a major focus on marketing strategies and pig selection to ultimately get the right pig on the right truck at the right time. But the opportunity is huge for, for all producers to, to fine tune that area. Mm-hmm. When you think just roughly, and, and we'll have Andres and, and Dr. Jerushi help us with this in a little bit, but when you think roughly about what factors might really be influencing weight variation, what are some common ones that we tend to think about? Well, we tend to think about uh, fill time in the barn and disease as two of the biggest ones. And unfortunately, that's probably where the least amount of work has been done. Um, Where we see more work would be around birth weight, weaning weight, weaning age, those kind of things. But I think this is one, as we got into it, there was probably less work on some of the management factors than than what we might have anticipated going into it. Very good. Andre, um, one thing I tend to hear a lot is, well, variation is normal, right? We should expect to have a bell curve type of distribution within a barn. Um, But really, can you help us understand what's the expected typical level of variation within a population? Yeah, of course. Uh, I think that's a great point. Variation is natural. Comes in all the species, all weights, or all production systems. And it's, it's inherited, so it's natural to see it. But when we were looking at try to model these and try to evaluate variation. Uh, as Dr. Uh, Reader said, we, were, we wanted to look at more than just one pig, more, more, more than just how the pig grows and changes body weight as it grows. So we looked at more trials evaluating the same question. When we came up with, with uh, an analysis we saw that based on the model that we uh, completed, we can expect a a bird coefficient of variation of 20%. I want to clarify here that the standard deviation is the deviation of the data or how spread the data is from the mean. And the coefficient of variation is that standard deviation expressing a percent to give a better understanding, to give a a more uh, clear idea of what percent of that population can be off of that uh, average of that mean. So when we look at from birth, we can expect that around 20% of the peaks born are off that mean body weight. And as the peak grows, we can be looking at marketing around 130, 140 kilograms or 280 to 300 pounds, we can expect a 10% coefficient of variation, meaning that 10% of the peaks in your population, whatever size barn or population you have, are outside of that uh, mean weight of the population. As as Dr. Reader brought up, a reduction from 10 to 9% is very significant economically, but it is is complicated. It's, it's It's not is not a black and white answer. Mm-hmm. You brought up some very good points, Andre. So you you clarified for our audience what 
CV means or coefficient of variation. And so it's expressed as a percent of, of standard deviation. And I think that's a really good point because we tend to use them pretty interchangeably, but yet we can confuse people very quickly. Um, and you also talked about what I heard you say is that when pigs are born, we can expect a 20% coefficient of variation. And when the pigs go to market, you're talking a 10% coefficient of variation. So variation from what I'm hearing you say reduces or narrows as the pig gets older. Is that correct? Absolutely. So the pigs are uh, born very variable, but they have genetic potential that they can they can develop. And if the conditions are, are uh, available, they can get to, to catch up to what the potential uh, or the genetic potential can express. So that is expected to narrow from 20 to about 10% when the pigs are about to get market at the um, standard marketing weight in the United States. I think that's a really interesting concept because we used to think that, oh, weight at, at birth or at weaning only magnifies the issue as the animals get older. And so what you're saying here is that pigs have the potential to catch up to their genetic potential, even if they're a little bit restricted at birth so that we reduce that variation. Um, along those lines though, one of the things I keep thinking about will be when I go into a marketing barn, so a barn ready to go to market, I can have a pig that's 350 pounds and I can have a pig that's you know, high 100s, right? 180 pounds maybe. So you're telling me that the variation is getting smaller, but yet I can see that there's significant differences in weight. Can you explain the difference to me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing is that the modeling that we, did, uh, that we do and what is expected within population of pigs is that that variation is a function of body weight. So body weight, as body weight increases, that number can increase when you measure or calculate a standard deviation, since that's in the units that you're doing the calculation with. However, when you look at the overall calculation of the uh, coefficient of variation, this, this, this uh, number as a function of body weight has decreased as some of the peaks in the population have reached some way that can narrow them or get them closer to the average, since assuming all the pigs are in the same conditions, such as healthy status, the same diets, the same environment. So uh, they are not competing intrauterine or in, 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 in the uterus of the sow, they have the same conditions outside. So we can assume that that number, yes, gets bigger as calculated, because he's as a, a function of the mean, which is kilograms or pounds, but the percent of that population outside of that expected weight is reduced overall. Perfect, yeah, I think that's a great explanation as to the difference that we have to think about, right? Because we focus a lot on just the numerical change as far as away from the mean in terms of weight rather than CV. And so that can be confusing to people um, that the CV is narrowing even though the weight 
range is widening because it's all related to a percentage. So perfect, perfect explanation there, uh, Andres. So let's talk a bit about variation then. Okay, so I think we've done a great job. We've talked about how this, this project came to be. We talked a little bit about the variation and what it means and that definition of CV. But what things can influence variation? Let's let's get more down into the the real nitty gritty. We we highlighted it kind of at a, a high level with with Dr. Ritter. So let's talk a little bit more now about you know what are some of the factors that can influence that variation and what can we do to mitigate it? So um, Dr. Darushi, I think we'll have you kind of help lead that discussion a little bit. Sure. Yeah, I think one thing we tried to do is we looked at trying to compile the information of how what factors are really driving it or what factors people believe are driving it that aren't supported by data or as we've come to learn, I mean, through Andres's uh, uh, analysis, you know, there was over 117,000 uh, individually weighed pigs that became part of that model on a lots of different research trials, most of them done in commercial conditions where these pigs were individually weighed, whether that was at birth, during uh, at weaning, during the nursery, and all the way to, to marketing. And really what it, it shows is there's been a lot done, but there's also generally some inconsistencies or, you know, how, how, we, how we basically bring back to what are the, the few things that we can do. And Often in this area, we're generally looking at how do we increase the weight of uh, the pigs, of the bottom end pigs, how do we move them up? Really, that's been the focus of most of the work is we got the fast growing pigs and even the medium growing pigs. We wanna decrease that barn weight variation on an actual basis. Oftentimes we focus, how do we get those, <laughs> those laggers uh, growing a little faster? And so we kind of broke it into the pre-weaning side and then post weaning to try and just look at some of those practices. And, and again, if we looked at iron injections, uh, we looked at different timing of iron, um, that really had no impact. As long as they got their shot, um, we, we really didn't change the CV or influence of that at weaning or, or subsequent. Um, one of the things that was interesting is, is litter size. So as in, in litters that were under 10, or if we kind of characterize those 10 or above, those that were under 10 actually had a higher CV because you have much some bigger birth weight pigs as well as you still had the lighter ones. As litter size increases, actually the birth weight CV within a litter actually goes down because it becomes more uniform with a higher litter. And so again, as we look at that and, and look at these smaller um, litters that some sows have, um, that certainly can influence um, some of that variation. Uh, weaning age, uh, Roger Main, again, this would be back to around over 20, just at 20 years ago when he did a lot of his weaning age work. There was a lot of follow through, not only on weaning age influence in the nursery, but into the finishing, but also the CV of those pigs. And data was a little mixed, but ultimately it showed, uh, if you really look through the data, one of the trials was very clear that as with an older weaning age, and in his data it was really going from 18 to 21. In his data, that was the time where we're looking at 18 to 21. Obviously today there's a lot of systems weaning older, but there was an influence to decrease the CV at the end of the nursery, as well as at finishing. And one of the studies 
the other study saw a decrease at the end of the nursery, but not significant at the end of finishing. But generally, collectively, we know an older weaned pig, at least up to that 21 day compared to, to lighter, we actually saw some more uniformity in those groups in terms of, of weight and, and CV. Um, also in the pre-weaning pre side, uh, split suckling. Uh, there's actually some really nice data on that. It's a management practice many farms implement, making sure that the baby pigs, they all get a colostrum level or a targeted amount, or some wanna make sure that the lightest pigs are getting enough colostrum. And in fact, we can see uh, some information there that uh, by split suckling, we can increase the total amount of pigs weaned that were over eight or nine pounds. So again, focused on those lighter pigs to bring them up um, within that population. Because one of the easy ways too to decrease CV is we can slow down the fastest growing pigs and bring them closer to the mean, but no one wants to do that, nor is that practical. So as we look at this population, if we want to decrease CV, again, how do we get the lighter pigs moved up without compromising those faster growing pigs? And, and that's some of the things we found in the pre-weaning pre stage, at least. Did you by chance look at what happens if you foster off all the, what we call the low-end pigs and create a litter of low-end pigs versus, you know, leaving everybody else alone? Did you, did you look at that to see how that might influence CV of a population? Yeah, that's that's a good point, and 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 honestly, there's not information, you know, collected, documented data weighing those pigs through creating nurse sows, you know, pulling those bottom pigs off, giving them a greater opportunity, and that is one thing that people really struggle with is, you know, we want to have a certain size of pig leave that farrowing house, yet how does that pig do later on? There was a, a data set again over about 20 years ago that we were involved with on a commercial farm where we took different weaning ages and broke them into to high and low weights. And it was clear on an 18 or even 21 day old pig, um, you know, just cause they were 21 days old and if they were lighter, they were still gave up lifetime growth, right? So again, there's, there's those things and that falls right into this lore in terms of an older pig that we move back to get to a certain weight. The reality is at least, um, again, very limited information. Uh, we have a good feeling that those are always going to be a lagger type pig that the, just because we got them big enough, but they're also older, right? So if they're three, four, five days older, now we finally get them to wait, they're still, they're never going to catch up. Now we do wean them later. So now they fit into that population, but those are still not going to be our fast growing pigs within that new population of a, of a wean group. But again, very limited information. And that is a whole, I would say in the research uh, to that we need to understand more. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be really interesting because I can remember, gosh, 15, 18 years ago now, whatever it was, we used to line the pigs up, right? They all had to look like what we said, soda cans sitting next to the sow. So they all had to be the same length. And and that was how we cross fostered. Mm -hmm. and, and then we moved away from that and we, kind of treated like what we do when we bring pigs into the nursery. Oh, we only move the low 10%. And so the question is, is are we creating more variation? Does it matter? Um, and so I think that would be a really interesting study is to try to follow that and better understand just those first 24 hour management practices beyond split suckling, you know, what influence they might have on lifetime CVs. 
I agree. And I, I think, again, that is a you know, as systems. And one of the goals of this, too, is to identify where we feel good about documented information that we can take and run with and where there is holes in terms of just not knowing um, and not just letting our eyeball try and dictate uh, what the outcome is. And that is certainly one that I would uh, feel strongly about that we need to understand that more and how we make sure that we're taking that that lowest 10%. And I, I'm with you, you know, we often segregate those going into the nursery. How do they fit longer term with growth performance? But a lot of times what happens in the South Farm is influencing that. And if we have a bottom 10% that's on a nurse South for an extra three to five days, and then they go to the nursery and are still bar, part of a bottom 10%, I mean, those pigs all of a sudden cumulatively become weeks older before those, you know, back to the contemporary litter mates that were weaned previous and already marketed and where that line is on profitability in terms of, of time just spent in our facilities that we're artificially allowing them to stay much, much longer. Mm -hmm. Very good point. So what about post weaning? So we, we briefly talked about pigs coming in and just simple management practices like gate cutting or sorting off the low 10%. Are you seeing anything that we need to be thinking about that could be influencing the ability for that CV to reduce over time? Yeah, so one of the things, there was a, a decent amount of information on some diet complexity or especially feed budget. So again, as Matt had set up, you know, we still have a high level of numerical weight differences in the nursery and particularly in finishing. And there is information where, where researchers, again, in commercial settings have segregated the lightest uh, proportion of the lightest pigs and fed them to their actual budget and not just the population budget. Because again, as we set feed budgets, it's to this wide range of pig weights. But we recognize that that bottom 25, 30%, they're chronically always below their budgets. They're not eating as much the fastest gaining pigs are consuming more. So they're always behind in their budget. And so, but if you actually take those and feed them to their budget, we can significantly reduce their CV by the end of market by feeding them more precisely. And one of the things that comes into play here, and, and Matt may want to talk about this, is we've, we've talked about fill times. You know, nurseries are one thing, but even our multi-room nurseries take longer to fill depending on the size of sow farms and how many sow farms are filling. Our wean to finish barns really make this even more challenging because we've gotten away from gender feeding in, in a lot of cases. We used to do much more split sex feeding than what we do today, particularly in wean to finish barns because our goal is to get that barn filled because otherwise we create artificial variation. And Matt, maybe you want to talk about some of the fill time and some of that analysis you've done, because I think that's really important when we talk about uh, the grill finish area as well. Yeah, so there's not any published literature that we found on the effects of fill time on variation, but with the, the equations that Andres has developed, you can build out the bell-shaped curve, and then we can offset those one week, two week, three week, four week, and model this out. And if we go with the assumption that at marketing, you've got about a 10% coefficient of variation, what we found is each week we add to that adds about 0.6% CV. So if we look at a two week fill time, you're looking at now a 10.6% coefficient of variation. And these are things we've got to validate in the field, but 
give us kind of a rule of thumb to start with as we go out and do new work going forward. That's a very good point. So we're already talking about a 1% change in coefficient variation costing us anywhere from 75 cents to $1.50. And so just adding a week not only creates that, but it also creates those marketing challenges that we see anyway, because now we might end up with partial truckloads when pigs aren't ready and, and so forth. So I, it, it can see how that just starts to continually compound our, our challenge for sure. And, you know, and you and, I, and Joel's right, we, we do struggle with, we no longer do a lot of gender feeding. And so there are ways I think that we are kind of hamstringing ourselves if we think about it in terms of just trying to minimize that variation. So, you know, Matt, based on what you're seeing today, how would you recommend filling a barn? I mean, obviously we know all in on one day is ideal, but how are some things based on what Joel's looked at and Andreas has looked at that you would you would vision us, you know, setting up for a barn? Well, I think there's a lot of discussions taking place in the industry right now about a single week fill from multiple sources versus single sourced over multiple weeks. And a lot of this comes down to health status and the flows, the health status of those flows we're going to mix. Uh, so I think that situation is probably unique to, to each system, but in a perfect world, we'd probably want a one week fill time if possible with high health pigs. Um, with what's going on in the industry in PERS 144, obviously that's easier said than done, uh, but that's that's the trade-off that I think a lot of systems have to, to really weigh the pros and cons of each uh, right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. So let's talk a little bit about disease. I think disease is one of those that we've always recognize that can influence variation. You know, we see a, a disease, disease go through a nursery and we can pick up, you know, just a visual difference in pen to pen variation by the time the pigs get to the finisher. But what does disease really have in terms of an impact? Does anybody have a number that they can share with the group? We went through the, the lit review. Um, to my knowledge, we were able, only able to find one published paper on this topic, and that was work by Corneliuson and others from 2018 out of Iowa State, where they individually weighed high health pigs and health challenged pigs. And in that study, the CV at marketing for the high health pigs was 12.2%, and the CV for the health challenged pigs was 15.5%. So a little over a 3% impact on coefficient of variation under pigs under commercial conditions. Now, again, that's just like what we talked about on fill time. That's kind of a guide to get us started. Obviously, we need to do more work, and I would expect uh, different diseases to have different magnitudes of impact on that, uh, but I'm guessing you know, with the PERS 144 challenge out there now, we'll, we'll probably be getting some new data to know if it's greater than that, or if that's right in line with what we would expect. Sure, sure. Um, so what about other things that we should be thinking about? It, we, we've hit the nursery and we've talked a little bit about specialized feeding and, and fill time, but what else should we be thinking about from a management perspective post wean that, that we haven't really talked about yet? Sure. So there's a variety of other topics that, that kind of came through of what people researched. And one of those, you know, back to gender and maybe just a quick touch on that. So, you know, it, it very clear that barrows have a higher CV um, than what gilts do both at weaning 
And uh, really through the finisher, there's a couple published studies uh, where barrels carried significantly higher CV all the way to market. Uh, another study, they were higher in the nursery and early finishing, and it wasn't significant in the end, but numerical. And so barrels have more variation compared to gilts. And I think, again, back to how we fill barns, back to that discussion just briefly, you know, how do we rethink of how we load these barns, right? So part of it is, is the, the concept of we wanted mixed gender. If we have to do mixed gender, barrels and gilts in each pen, because as we start marketing the barrels, it gives space to the gilts to allow them to grow faster or more time in the barn in the end. Uh, one of the things that we, we often need to think about though is do we need to start looking how we feed within these barns differently? And that's not easy. And that, that goes back to the conversation of the lightest pigs. They need to you know, ideally be fed to their specific budgets when we know right now they are not. Um, one of the things is added energy and amino acids, you know, all those components of the diet. Uh, Chad Hasted, part of his PhD program here at K-State, looked at added fat levels, looking at the weight populations in commercial barns. And it was very clear that the light, you know, light pigs responded to fat, you know, all the pigs responded, but the heaviest, fastest growing pigs actually had the less, had a lesser response in total body weight to added fat versus the lighter pigs. And so oftentimes then you can target, well, can we somehow target in a barn, whether that's one side of the barn versus the other? You know, if the lighter pigs are on one side, you know, then we could feed more nutrient rich diets, both amino acids and fat to meet their needs. But then the problem is we come marketing, then we're pulling pigs from one side, not as much from the other because we know space is a huge driver in this. And it's very interesting, um, you know, Shull um, has in 2010 published a couple studies looking at floor space. And honestly, as they looked at floor space uh, levels, it did not influence the CV of those, of those pens or that population. What it clearly did was impact the final body weights. And we all recognize that. And so while it didn't influence CV, it influenced body weight. So this gets into that circular discussion of a population. You know, we need to create space for those slowest pigs at the end to get them to market weight. And at the same time, how do we do that practically if we want to feed them a little differently? Because then we, we're not creating space at the end because we need them have the extra time. So a little bit more understanding of what is that best approach because we can increase that weight of those light pigs. But how do we do that in our current barn setup and design? That becomes real challenge. And we know we can through some diet energy, amino acids, and that fits into these feed budgets correctly. Uh, but And also, again, yeah, the floor space, I think, is a, was really a take home of the information presented out there that just because the pens are filled tighter, their CV, that competition necessarily didn't drive a CV difference within pen. But obviously, it influenced body weight if we started to go over any K values in those particular situations. I think you bring up a couple of really good points. One, it sounds like we might need automated feeders at some point in finishers if we could economically justify mm -hmm. it, right? And I think the, the model that you're working on and, and putting those economics behind it may help us start to understand if that is an economically feasible option where you can keep the small pigs in with the larger pigs, but have different diets being fed based on RFID reads. Um, but you also talk about, you know, that, that change. So a lot of times I think we inherently think, well, if I slow the pigs down, I'm going to create more variation in the barn. 
right? Because I think, again, our, our big model is disease. Well, we know pigs get sick. We know they slow down in growth rate. We know they don't eat. And so we get more variation. So I think you're bringing up a really interesting concept is not everything that potentially slows the pig down alters variation. Yeah, and, and I think that's right. And as, so as you kind of go through that laundry list, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's how we help these extra, these small pigs. And, you know, and, and sometimes too, you know, the cattle industry has is, is done a really good job of starting to look at residual feed intake and our genetic companies as well do that as well. Cause that's that incremental extra energy that isn't necessarily going to growth, but it's just making feed efficiency worse. And even within our populations, those fastest growing pigs, you know, a lot of times we treat those as very sacred, you know, cause we're proud of how fast those big ones can go. But the reality is, is, is that what is their feed, as long as we've maintained their feed efficiency on those highest intake pigs, then we're okay. But maybe it depends on the genetics and our, you know, feeder types. Honestly, there's very little information on, on feeder type. And I would challenge people out there to really look at that, looking at wet, dry versus, you know, traditional dry feeders when we have the higher feed intakes. And, you know, do we drive that top end almost too fast? And again, those are, that's hard to, say but the reality is is back to the cv and are we getting too many pigs over the top of of these marketing windows if we actually slowed them down even a few days it's a big difference and so oftentimes we think of putting the brakes or trying to put the to uh put the pedal down to have the light pigs we just oftentimes need a few extra days to accomplish that box window so we're not going over the top and, and getting them up and I think just trying to put that together becomes the challenge with all these other practices. Mm -hmm. One of the things we've thought about to, to build off of what Joel said is after you take that first cut and you get those heaviest animals out there, he mentioned energy, he mentioned amino acids, potentially we come in with a diet designed for those pigs remaining in the barn to help drive better performance there. That's one, as we talk about it, sounds challenging to implement, but as an industry, we, we use the first cut as a lever to put ractopamine in for years. Uh, so maybe going back and kind of understanding some of those implementation practices were used then, but I, I think that's a topic that probably merits a little more research discussion going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Matt. It's, it's something that initially might sound a little bit daunting, but you're absolutely right. We used to use paline and and honestly, if, if the first cut gets the, the extra energy for a day before the loadout, it's probably not the end of the world, but it's there and it's ready and it's, it's set for those, those next pigs. And it'd be interesting to see what type of growth rate you get when you change that diet to a higher energy, higher nutrient phase for those pigs and add space. Right. So do we have any data out there on that currently? Have I missed it? Or is that something that sounds like Andres's next project? <laughs> well, we know summarizing a lot of the work that's been done between University of Illinois, uh, Mike Ellis's lab, and the Kansas State Swine Group. After we take a first cut, uh, the performance of those pigs remaining in the barn, we see bumps in average daily gain of about 10% and improvements in feed intake and feed efficiency of about 5.5% each. And that's keeping them on the same diet. So the question then becomes, if we alter that diet and get the benefits of that increased floor space, feeder space, et cetera, you know, do we create a synergy there? And those, that's, that's probably a, a next study that we need to be working on. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it could be really intriguing. Uh, we know we will never capture all the value that that ractopamine gave us for you know the middle to low end pigs in terms of feed efficiency, but this would be an interesting concept to see if we can, as, as Joel said, help get those those lower pigs up into the box and and make the money for the producer. Very good. Well, as we kind of wrap up our, our time here, I'd, I'd like to go um, around to each one of you and, and just get your collective key point that you would like the audience to know. And then we'll jump into just a couple of additional questions. So um, whoever would like to start first, if you just want to touch on a couple of key points of the work that you're doing and, and these prediction equations, which sounds like you've got a great start to those equations. and and it'll be wonderful knowledge and value to the industry, particularly in finding those gaps. Um, so yeah, let's kind of hear from you all what, what your key, key points are today. Yeah, uh, I think that the big, big key point that people need to understand of this work is that we try to evaluate a true population variation. We try to evaluate data sets where the peaks were not segregated in lights or heavies or different field times or different status or different diets. This is, we try to approach a true population variation. And then the value of this meta-analysis is as I, I stated before, this is compiling trials and peaks, 100, 117,000 individual weight peaks from different genetics, different systems, different uh, companies, and then I think that this is a tool that that gives us a snapshot of what you can see normally and variation within a barn. I think that the key points and, and uh, one of the key messages that we think uh, that people needs to, to focus on is those, again, those lightweight peaks. What can we do to them? Again, as it's been discussed, discussed during the call, there is many things that might be inconsistent. There is many, many, many approaches or procedures where you can um, apply something. And in, sometimes data shows that works, sometimes data shows that might not work. But I think that there is opportunities there to improve the light bottom end peaks uh, performance can help us uh, reduce that, that window or that bridge or gap of variation at the end and can give opportunities producers as Dr. Reader and Dr. DeRucci say there is dollars there. So I think this is the first step in this, in this uh, people need to understand from this work. Very good, Andre. Matt, do you have something to add? Yeah, so I've really taken the work that uh, the equations that Andres has built and really tried to focus on application to predicting the timing of the first cut for marketing. Cause we know if we miss the first cut, there's a good chance we're going to be heavy on every load thereafter. And, you know, we just do some quick application here on Andre's work. If we take a 1200 head barn averaging 250 pounds with a 10% CV, we can do the math. That's a 25 pound standard deviation. Then apply the principles of a normal distribution. 90 plus percent of the pigs are plus or minus three standard deviations. So now we build out that range in body weight of 175 to 325 pounds. So again, a little eye opening that there's 150 pound spread in weights in that barn. 
But also, when we look at those weights at that average barn weight of 250, we should be able to pull one load of 170 pigs out of there that's going to weigh 289. Those pigs are in the barn. We just got to go find them. And then after that load leads the farm, the remaining pigs in the barn average 243. So there's a lot there to understand and then think about, okay, what are we gonna do differently now with those remaining pigs in the barn like we just talked about nutritionally? Uh, but I think you know this is important, a first step and to be able to build those pictures for producers and pig markers to understand what's in the barn and then we've got to take that next step to educate folks on selecting the right pigs uh, to get on the truck. Perfect. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate that insight. Joel, anything to add? No, they both summarized a lot of the things that we've talked about around this area. And I think the other thing, too, is we, we talked on it is before we got to this last segment is really focusing on that really late finishing area. And so we basically can target extra, basically we're talking extra feed cost, right, to a subpopulation. How do we do that and minimize the, the feed costs to that group? And that is targeting that end. And I think there needs to be a lot more understanding because a lot of the data with different additives, copper, energy, amino, all these things, um, a lot of them are for longer durations. And, and whether a producer is using those, you know, technologies or not, or nutrient levels, um, how do we still, though, at the end, get get a return if we choose to do that? And I think especially going forward with added fat prices, um, that those don't appear to be going back to historic levels anytime soon. Even if feed corn and other things come down, fat appears, all indications to be really high. And I think those are back to targeted use um, times. And I think there needs to be a lot more understanding. And probably the other thing that was very glaring in all this information is truly the lack of information on, on the health impact. And we recognize that our eyeball tells us, closeouts tell us, but in terms of having a better handle on the health interaction and, and what type of health, is it gut or is it respiratory? You know, those type of things um, really come into play when we talk about economics and bringing it back to the cost of health or uh, healthy pigs and what we can make versus the other side and understanding that. And I would really encourage any listeners that have opportunities to do that within their systems or be an advisor for production systems, really to, to relook at that if there's opportunities, because I think that is a huge glaring hole that we found um, that just not much is, is available for people to take it to the next level of understanding. Perfect. So as we wrap up our time today, I again, want to thank you all for, for all of your wonderful insight. And I, I agree. I think we have so much more work to do, but anytime we get little pieces of information to kind of help direct our, our areas so that we know where our gaps are is only going to make us stronger as an industry. Um, so as we, as we kind of walk through these last few moments together, we like to ask, of course, a couple of questions, and I'm going to condense two of them together just because we have three panelists and um, it could get kind of to be too much of a carousel with everybody. But if you have um, either a swine resource book, maybe outside of the NRC or diseases of swine that you would like to recommend to the audience, uh, that would be great. Or even sharing some other books that you're reading currently in your leisure time, um, we'd like to open that up to the, to the panelists. 
I'll start with that and maybe a swine swine book. I'll leave that to the experts in in the discussion. But um, I think that I'll promote a book that is from Colombia. It's a Nobel Prize. Uh, is Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which uh, the name of the book is 100 Years of Solitude. So it's a very interesting book that I read when I was in high school and I, I found it online and I'm picking it up in English, see if I can improve it a little bit as well. So I'll go with that if the readers want to buy it and, and the, the listeners want to buy it and read it, I'll, I'll encourage them to do a very good book. Absolutely. I think I've heard of that book before, actually. So I've never read it, but I have heard of it. So wonderful. Uh, Matt or Joel, do you have anything that you'd like to recommend? So a book I, I'd recommend is a little bit outside of the swine area, but uh, one I think has some important lessons in it would be How the Mighty Fall by Jim Collins. Kind of a case study of very successful businesses across industries that failed to recognize changes in their markets and failed to adapt to those changes and ultimately uh, failed. I think there's a lot of great you know, lessons from that to be applied that drive us to keep driving for improvements and change even when you're on top of the industry. Perfect, that's a great book. I'll have to take a look at that one. Joel, do you have any to add? You know, not necessarily on the books. I, you know, when we kind of talk about this question, I mean, the ways I still try and get information, I mean, uh, there's a lot of articles, and not just to use National Hog Farmer, Pork Magazine, Feedstuffs. There is so much good information that comes out through those, and, and a lot of that no longer comes in print. You know, National Hog Farmer is no longer printed, it's all web based. There's every month a multitude of universities contributing, again, new information that's coming out that's maybe not been published in other places. Uh, you have some on the price forecast. I, I'll be honest, I still use those three as a good example of places I go. And I think to stay up on our industry, um, and so I'll kind of stay on, on current technical or other information. I think that we've really evolved the swine information that comes out and there's so much coming in different directions. You got to boil it down somehow, but I'll be honest, I probably spend more time catching up and reviewing those and, and from other sources to, to stay up on our, our industry and the newest things coming out. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Always good resources. Well, the last question I have for all of you is if you can imagine somebody who's successful in our industry and you think about the characteristics or the traits that they possess, what would be one or two that stand out to you the most? Yeah, I can start. I, I think of some of those that have been, that they're just trusted advisors. And, and I think no matter what their background, if they're a nutritionist, geneticist, veterinarian, um, not only do they offer help, but they listen. And if they don't know the answer, they go help find it. And uh, they, they give good information, not just an opinion, but something backed by, data and uh, those over time that, that bring information that just can be trusted and listen. Um, I find those, you know, in, in our industry to be very successful and, and are used by a lot of people to uh, help individual operations. Perfect. Matt or Andres, do you have anything to add? Yeah, that was a great one, Joel. The, what I'd add is they're just not afraid to challenge the norms. 
uh, when we get into an industry like the swine industry, there's things we've always done a certain way for years. And there's times we got to take a step back and challenge is what we're doing the right thing to do today. And I think that that separates some of the really successful people from the people that have average success. Yeah, uh, I think I'll second what uh, Dr. Reader say, but I think that as I'm growing as a, as a grad student, I think that one of the things that I have seen is that you are formed not only scientifically, but also as a person, also as a human being. And I think that that portion of every single professional in any position in the industry or any, any job that they do or we do is very important. So be able to, to grow yourself because that getting a, a grad grad degree, grad student's degree in, in fine nutrition doesn't mean you're going to be formulating your whole life. That means that you you can change roles, you can go to regulation, you can go to supply chain, you can go to technical service. But but this training, our grad school, and especially uh, Kansas team has told me that you also have to be open to grow in, in, in yourself, your personality and your values. I think that that helps any professional outside the industry. Oh, perfect. Wonderful suggestions, thoughts, and advice from, from our whole panel team today. Um, again, I do want to thank you for your time. And I know it's not always easy to get a group together. So again, thank you for taking some time out of your day to do this. Um, for our audience today, just as a reminder, we had um, Dr. Joel Derushi and Andres Tolosa from Kansas State University and Dr. Matt Ritter from Cargill Provini. So again, thank you all for your time today and I, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura, it was a pleasure. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven-week-long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcio Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com.